come to Sioux City to follow through on the vision that Mark was given by God to establish a center where people in the evangelical church could be equipped to understand the spiritual battle, we have been blessed. We have been blessed. And there is no other man that I respect more for his godly walk, for his love for God, for his love for prayer. How many times did we spend just in your basement praying before the Lord? And, and uh, uh, I just relish the opportunity to introduce to you Dr. Mark Bubeck, the founder and president of ICBC. Thank you so much, Dan. And uh, as I look out upon you, my heart is greatly encouraged, refreshed, and blessed. Um, thank God for you and for all of our staff that's worked so hard to um, make it possible for us all to be here. God has brought together I think an unusual conference this year and uh, appreciate so much your uh, being here and your prayer and just may God be pleased to greatly encourage all of us. Right beginning with this session, I'm looking to the Lord to enable me to communicate something of what God has put within me. As I've been saturating myself with the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we actually look into the word, I'd like to take a moment of personal privilege to thank you. I know perhaps all of you don't know, but uh, most of you know that my a precious wife, who's been a faithful attender at these conferences and always by my side, uh, has been stricken with Hodgkin's disease. She's undergoing chemotherapy, which, as many of you know, can be a very painful process. But I thank you for your prayers. And we just hear constantly from people literally all over the world that they're praying for Anita's health. And we believe the Lord's going to be pleased to raise her up and restore her to health. Uh, she will have a CAT scan again next week. And that should tell us something about uh, the progress thus far. I want to try to quote this prayer. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your sons, that your son may glorify you 
For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you unto those whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours. And all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By the name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for these alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
may they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I pray for them and that the I've lost it here. The world may believe that you sent me. May they be brought into complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Probably all of us have had an experience in seeing scenic wonders that have filled us with awe and a sense of grandeur to the point where we've just been kind of left speechless. We didn't know what to say and we were just silent and tried to take it all in. Perhaps it was the first time you saw Niagara Falls as my wife and I did on our honeymoon. Or the first time you gazed upon the Grand Canyon or the majesty of the Rocky Mountains or the snow-capped Tetons. And you just were overwhelmed. All of us treasure those moments. But in the spiritual realm, sometimes there are spiritual wonders that do the same thing for us. In the early years of my ministry, the Lord gave me Isaiah 5715 as my life verse. For thus saith the high and lofty one whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is of a humble and a contrite heart to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite. When the Lord gave that to me, it just stopped me. I meditated on it for days. I preached on it. I wept over it. I prayed its truth into my soul. I asked God to make that real in my life and my experience. Anita, seeing how deeply it moved me, she 
engaged a gifted calligrapher in our church who made a beautiful gold embossed uh, uh, calligraphy work. And she framed it and gave it to me on my birthday. And that still occupies a very important place in our home. And I still go to it at times and just stand in front of it and let the awe of those words humble me, move me to tears. My experience has been that it's not too often anything moves me quite that deeply. Those of you who know my background, I'm of German heritage, the stiff upper lip, nothing moves me, kind of uh, walk. But uh, I would have to share with you that memorizing John 17, even though I had preached from it many, many times and studied it until I memorized it, it never really broke me humbled me, searched me. In his B-series, Bible Exposition Commentary on this passage, Dr. Warren Wearsby, whom we'll all be privileged to hear tonight, uh, wrote these words about this prayer. Quote, It's the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in scripture. And I would have to echo an amen. What a prayer. Take a lifetime to probe its depths. I found it difficult to prepare a sermon on it. I prepared many outlines only to lay them aside. But as I kept praying over it and realizing that God was saying to me that he wanted me to bring something from this prayer at this uh, particular conference. He finally gave me an outline. And um, I want to share that with you. Now, it certainly doesn't exhaust the prayer. But um, you have the outline there on page two, and you might just want to open to it and scribble some notes. We're not just sure where the Lord Jesus prayed this prayer. Many put it in the upper room before they actually left to journey toward Gethsemane. I think uh, I lean more toward those who believe that as they left the upper room on the way to Gethsemane, that the Lord Jesus prayed this prayer as they walked along. Some of them heard some of it, perhaps only John, whom the Holy Spirit chose to record it. One of the intimate three, in fact, seemingly the most and the closest to the Lord Jesus. Perhaps only he heard it all. At any rate, the Holy Spirit used him to give it to us. He prayed it. And we need to understand that it's it's the prayer of an overcomer. It's the prayer of triumph. The Lord Jesus was not a victim because he was on his way to the cross. 
to his betrayal, to his arrest, and all that stood before him. But he was our victor. And uh, he shares with us the key to overcoming our enemies. I think perhaps the key to the, uh, to the prayer is the last verse of chapter 16, where Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And it was right after he said this that he prayed the prayer. And it really is the key to walking and overcoming life, a victorious life. And as I prayed over this and sought an outline that somehow would minister to us, and there are many that we could have looked at, but the thing that God seemed to keep saying to me, that this prayer is the exalting of the Father and the secret of freedom and victory is to exalt God, the Father, who he is, what he's done, what he's provided us. And those who walk in freedom know that truth, and they live it. Great doctrinal truth about God is not something you learn in seminary, in Bible college, or church. It's something you live. And every day, if you're walking in freedom, is filled with great doctrinal truth about who God is and what he's done. And I want us to focus on that, that this prayer of the Lord Jesus first of all, exalts the Father's name. He says, Father, the time has come. What time is he talking about? The hour has come. Well, it's certainly showing for us the importance of God's sovereignty. But the fact that he exalts his name, Father, the name Father is in this prayer um, some six times. In that upper room discourse, there are 53 times when God is called Father. And in the Gospel of John, 122 times. Now, Bible names are tremendously important, especially names that have to do with God, because those names communicate to us the character of God, the nature of God, who God really is. Now, in the Old Testament, names for God, fathers, Mentioned probably less times than Jesus used it in this prayer alone. Most of the names for God in the Old Testament are transcendent. 
They're profound and, and uh, meaningful, but they focus on his superlative greatness. He's Yahweh, or Elyon, the highest of the high, or Shaddai, the mightiest of the mighty, or that I am, that I am. Rather austere name that Moses was to tell the people of the one that God had sent uh, to lead them out of bondage. And I'm sure that was a kind of a shocking name to them. But the beautiful thing about the Lord Jesus is that he, he softens the majesty, the justice, the awesome greatness of the Heavenly Father and brings the truth down to where we can understand it and live with it and appropriate it. And it wasn't until Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. That we begin to understand who I am is. He's gentle. He's food. He's strength. He's power. He's the good shepherd. He did the same for the word father. Now to some of us here, the word father is not a pleasant word. For some of you, just hearing the name father causes panic, fear, Anger, rage, terror. Because the only father you ever knew violated you. Certainly, if not true of you, true of your counselees. For it's one of Satan's major tools to destroy the picture God wants of himself as father. That through verbal abuse or sexual abuse or perhaps even uh, ritual abuse, your father hurts you deeply. And you're still recovering. But I want us to think about what father conveys as Jesus used it. First of all, it conveys his sovereignty. The time has come. The time has come. What time? The time that's in the Father's hands. The time for redemption. The time for forgiveness. The time for provision for you and me. The time for judgment against sin, the time for the shedding of blood, the time for, for pain and hurting. 
And Jesus Christ welcomed that time. It was the time for which he'd come into the world. Jesus is referring to an important time, time that he knew. And he's pointing attention to the Father's sovereignty. Oh, what a wonderful thing to know that God is in charge. Someone prayed this morning in our early morning prayer time, which I hope more of you might come to, your presenters, the beautiful time this morning, that um, the Father's in charge of everything. And uh, even all of the evil that's so rampant today is under his restraint, his control, his wrath. He will take care of it because he's sovereign, totally sovereign. As I was preparing this, I couldn't help but think about my nephew, Scott Bubeck. He was one of those F-18 pilots that flew off of the Saratoga in the Gulf War. And after the war was over, he was still on it. And of course, uh, taking off and flying many times. And one day he took off and the equipment failed. And that powerful, powerful jet did a barrel roll and he knew it was out of control and he ejected, but he ejected into the sea and Scott was killed. He's my missionary brother's boy and it was so hard to understand. But I want to tell you, God is sovereign even in such things as that. I got on a plane one day and I was on the aisle seat and next to the window was a man in a pilot's uniform and he was reading and I couldn't get his attention. Just hoped to talk to him. <clears throat> when they bought, brought the refreshment, um, we started to talk and, and in the conversation I learned that he had been an F-18 Navy pilot. And so I shared with him about my nephew. And he cried. He had a friend that died that way. And he hurt. But the beautiful thing was it opened up a conversation about eternal things. And though I didn't have opportunity to lead him to Christ, I know it was a part of something very important God was doing in his life, and it wasn't until later, as I meditated upon it and prayed for him, that I realized how sovereign God is, that he put me on a plane and put me in a seat so I'd have a common thread of vital uh, communication with him. God is sovereign in the big things and the little things. He's sovereign. Father means he's sovereign. Father conveys perfect glory. Look at verse 5 of this uh, 17th chapter. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I love that. There's no thought that somehow through the evolution of time that uh, that um, the glory is greater now. It's the same glory. Because you see, God is infinitely perfect. And he's all glorious. You know, one of the greatest insults that has ever been given to our God is a teaching of one of the cults, a very prominent cult, Mormonism, that says, uh, as we are, God once was, and as God is, we one day will be. I had a funeral director riding in a coach with me tell me that one day, and I felt righteous rage. I can get angry, but usually it's not righteous, but that was righteous. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, you have just insulted the God I love and serve with the greatest insult I have ever heard. Our God is infinite. He's holy. He's eternal without beginning or end. And he's all glorious. Father conveys holy safety. Look at verse 11, where he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you, holy Father. I think that's the only time that address is used in the New Testament. Holy Father. Why is that so important? Notice what he says. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Holy Father. Protection. Some of you have been wounded by an earthly father. It's so hard for you to conceive of God as your father. But let me say to you, he's a holy father. He's a holy father. He would never violate you. He's holy. The word, Greek word for holy is hagios, and it comes from the root in the Greek hagos, which means awful. And to evil, the holiness of God is awful. His holiness repels evil. And uh, we need, we need is our Holy Father for protection. And then Father conveys benevolent unity. Look at verse 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. What a wonderful prayer that fatherhood 
means to convey family oneness. A family oneness that's just like the oneness between the Father and the Son. And Jesus wants us to understand that his Father's desire is to give us all that kind of intimacy, of fellowship, to know that we're one. I don't know of anything in this world that conveys that the way God means it to be conveyed. Perhaps the closest thing to it is when God gives a real good marriage, when in every sense of the word, uh, people become one. And uh, that marriage is built around that relationship and that intimacy and that sharing and that burden and that trust and that love. That's as God planned it. And God intended that the husband-wife relationship would illustrate the intimacy between the Lord Jesus and his church. But it's not just with the Lord Jesus. It's with the Father, too. We're family. We're family. He also exalts the Father's glory. The word glory appears eight times in this prayer. And the word glory, as you know, is a transcendent word. It's a measureless word. It um, is very difficult to describe or define what glory is. It remains beyond the reach of man's definition. And as I read through most of the 225 times that the word glory in its various forms is used in the New Testament, I was impressed by the measureless wonder always associated with it. It has to do with worshiping God. It has to do with praise. It has to do with brilliant beauty. Sometimes heaven itself is just referred to as glory or glorious. And you have to leave it there. Now, people who walk in freedom need to exalt the Father's glory. Now, how do you do that? Well, Jesus shows us. Some of the ways. First of all, glory comes to God through the sufferings of Christ. Notice in verse 1, that certainly is intimated when he says, The time has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Now what was he talking about? He was talking about the cross. He was talking about the pain and the agony that awaited him in the sufferings of the cross. Now Jesus is glorified in his miracles. Uh, Jesus is glorified in his sinless, worthy human life. He's glorified in the teaching that he did with his disciples. All of that can be supported by scripture, which we don't have time to look at now. But there is no glory that comes to the Father or the Son like the cross. It's the heart of his glory. It's the heart of, of uh, that which glorifies God. 
It's the work of the cross that um, really glorifies the Heavenly Father. And, and that fits in so beautifully to our ministries as counselors, as helping people get free. Now, if you haven't discovered it, dear friend, you really need to understand that your walk of freedom, whether it's freedom from the rule of your flesh or freedom from the dictates and deceptions of the world or freedom from the bondage of darkness, it's always related to the cross. And we have to teach our counselees that, that they need to appropriate the victory of the cross in their walk of freedom from the rule of their flesh or the deceptions of Satan. I'm So many of us learn about counselees. But as we were working through his dealing with his with this sexual bondage, he came to understand the importance of the cross. And he said, you know, I always understood that the cross was so important for my salvation and my redemption. But I didn't understand that if I'm going to walk in freedom, I have to use it every hour of every day that I live. And every counselee has to learn that. That it's in the cross. It's in the death of the Lord Jesus that we're dead to the rule of our fleshly nature. It's in the cross and in the blood of the Lamb that we overcome the powers of darkness. Glory comes through his cross. Glory also comes through his people. Look at verse 10. He says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. Wonderful to know that you're part of the Father's glory. And we need to see each counselee as somebody that's glorious in God's plan. And it's beautiful to hear the testimonies of those who walk in freedom. And then he gets glory through oneness. Look at verse 22, where he mentions uh, uh, this again. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Glory comes through oneness, through unity, through living out the truth of the body of Christ. And then there's glory, of course, in his presence that's mentioned in verse 5 where he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And then in verse 24, where he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And that's, of course, the pinnacle of glory is when finally we are in the presence of the Lord. I have a very favorite verse in Colossians 3, 4. 
It says, when Christ who is our life appears, then Coming, when we will be in glory, when we will be clothed upon with glory, totally beyond the temptations of the world and the flesh and Satan, we will be part of the glory. And absolute righteousness will prevail. He exalted the Father's word. We live in a day where the historic traditions of the church. And I'm sorry to say in some circles when even the practicing of spiritual gifts are sometimes exalted above the Father's word. I may seem a little out of date to some of you, but I still wince a little. When I'm a part of a church worship service, that doesn't give attention to the public reading of the word of God. And I even prefer that it be in unison because it gives the people the opportunity to participate in the reading of the precious word of God. Notice that his word brings glory to God. First of all, just quickly note that his word Ex, expects acceptance and obedience in verses 6 and 8 where he says I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world they were yours you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word and then in verse six, 8 he mentions I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them you see when you believe the word and accept it and stand on it it brings glory to God. His word bestows assurance in the latter part there of verse 8 where it says, uh, they knew with certainty that I came for you and believed that you sent me. You know, this prayer was the uh, instrument that God used many years ago when I was in Bible college to really give me absolute assurance that I belonged to the Lord and that I was safe with him. Because when I see it, saw that the Lord prayed for my safety, and there really isn't any assurance apart from the word. You can only base your assurance on not experience, as, as joyful as that may be, but there are all kinds of experiences. And today they're just, rife and everybody's clamoring for a new experience when assurance comes from the word the absolutes of, of truth and his word produces joy in your life look at verse 13 this is the center verse of the prayer and i think it's really has the heart of the whole prayer jesus How do you get joy? 
Well, the Bible tells us joy comes from the new birth. It comes from answered prayer. But it comes from the Father's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much fine gold. I try to role model scripture memorization because I feel it's one of the tragic, neglected disciplines that ought to be the practice of every one of us. But I'd have to be, I'd be dishonest with you if I said that that's the major reason that I memorize scripture is to role model the importance of it. The major reason I do it is for my joy. I have no greater joy in life than to be able to take my walk and the whole time I walk just pray God's word back to him because I've hidden it in my heart. And my joy sometimes just won't stop. There's joy in the word. His word continues sanctification. Verses 15 through 19. And his word Produces salvation, 18 through 20. There's no way that people are saved apart from hearing the word, hearing the message, and they come to know the Lord. In the interest of time, I'm not going to develop that more, but it's true. Now, the last part of the prayer exalts the Father's people. As we're privileged to listen to this conversation between the Son and the Heavenly Father, you cannot miss his people focus. What do you talk about? He's exalting the Father, yes. But he's praying about you. He's praying about me. Have you ever wondered what does God talk about? He talks about you. You're precious to him. He gives you eternal life. In verses uh, 2 and 3, makes that so clear. Now this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. And then verse 6, where he says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, and they were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Now the word give in one form or another is used 17 times in the prayer. And it's interesting that most of those times focus on this thought that 
as a believer, you're the father's gift to his son. Most of us think of salvation as being God's gift to us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But in this passage, we are God's gift to his son, the Lord Jesus, in the wonder of that. He provides protection for his people. Look at verse um, uh, verse 9, where he uh, says it so beautifully. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. And then he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So there's wonderful assurance that God provides protection for us. And I have just been praying this prayer over this conference because it just fits us so much that Jesus prayed not that we'd be taken out of the world, but the Father would protect us from the evil one. And uh, we just need to stand under the canopy of this prayer and pray it back to God and ask him to apply it to our ministries and our lives and all that we are. He accomplishes oneness in his people. Now, let me just share a few thoughts in closing on that because I think they're tremendously important thoughts. Oneness is the key to intimacy with God. That's really the heart of this prayer, which comes out in a number of places. Look at verse 20, uh, where he says it this way, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Intimacy. The same intimacy that exists between the Father and the Son, he desires for you and me. Oneness is also the key to intimacy with other believers. Look at verse 21 again where he says that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oneness is the key to intimacy with other believers. Now, how can we be one together? I really believe it, it centers down upon two major things we ought to be doing. One has to do with prayer. And as I memorized this prayer, I realized that I had not really given the focus of prayer for the unity of the body like the Lord Jesus does. It just, it just overwhelms you in this prayer. The major, major concern 
of the Lord Jesus Christ that the body have an intimacy and a oneness that came from prayer that Jesus was lifting to the heavenly father. Now what's the other important ingredient in oneness in the body? I believe it has to do with doctrine. Now you may think that's a little strange because it seems like doctrine has divided us. You have the Methodists with their doctrine, the Baptists with theirs, and, and the Pentecostals with theirs. You know, something was done at the uh, Promise Keepers rally in Washington that uh, really spoke to me. And I think we ought to do it here just, just to show you and illustrate you for us again uh, how doctrine really holds us together. Let me first of all just ask you at the count of three, would all of you just say what church you belong to or what denomination you belong to? We're going to say it in unison on three. You just say it real loud, okay? One, two, three. Baptist. Wasn't that a lot of noise? You might have heard the person next to you, but the rest of it was just noise. Now, at the count of three, I want you to do something else. I want you to answer with his first name. His whole name. After I read through some of these things. Who was it shed his blood for your sins and mine? Who was it that washed away all the guilt and the filth of your sins? Who was it that justified you and robed you in his righteousness? Who prayed for you to be one with other believers? Who arose from the dead and ascended into heaven? Who promised that he would prepare a place for you? Who promised that he would come again with power and great glory? Who was it that promised you the Holy Spirit with the Heavenly Father? Who is it that's at the Father's right hand right now? Who is it that will present you faultless in the presence of his glory, without strain or wrinkle or blemish of any kind? One, two, three. Jesus Christ. See the difference? Oh, there's so much that we hold as precious in doctrine. And when you pray for the oneness of the body, remember all of the great doctrine about which we don't disagree. And I'm not talking here about organizational unity. I'm talking about spiritual unity. I don't have this point in, but I'm just going to mention it in closing. Oneness is an important key to effective warfare. I hope that that's assumed. In John uh, chapter 10 and verse 12, we read these words. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, 
he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. I was watching television on the on the uh, public channel, and they had an account about wolves in the wild. And the wolves in this uh, video study selected a herd of buffalo. And when they started to charge that buffalo herd, I thought they will not be able to touch those buffalo. But you know what they did? They singled out one cow buffalo. And even though she was a big, strong animal with powerful horns and hooves, they cut her off from the herd. And they kept her separate. And then, before our eyes, those wolves just tore her to pieces, bit by bit, taking several hours. But finally they did it. And her life was gone. What an illustration of what that wolf who devours tries to do. I always tremble when somebody involved in warfare tells me they're not going to church. I warn them. They're setting themselves up to be torn to pieces by the wolves. Because the body is part of our safety. It's part of belonging. It's part of oneness and protection. Now the last point, it's an important key to effective evangelism. And before I memorize this prayer, I really never saw that before. But he, he just stresses it so much. Look at verse 20. We already read it, but um, the closing part of that verse, he said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, just that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And then verse 25, I have a righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have before me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Did you understand that uh, Jesus associates evangelism with uh, oneness of the body, working together, praying together, standing together, evangelizing together. He asserts that he's not praying for the world. That doesn't mean he's not interested in the world. He has a great interest in the world. But he reaches the world through united people. Now I'd like 
as we close, just to have a little time focusing on this. I would like to suggest for those of you who are able to kneel, and that wouldn't be too uncomfortable for you, we're not going to be but just a moment. But I would just ask that uh, in reverence before the Lord, would you in prayer just exalt the Father's glory? Would you take a moment to just exalt his name? The name of holy safety. The name of benevolent unity. Of perfect glory. Of total sovereignty. Now exalt him through the Father's glory, the glory of Christ's sufferings, the glory of his people. The glory of his oneness with the Son and with us. Praise him for the glory of his presence. Now take a moment to exalt the Father's word. It expects your acceptance and obedience. He wants it to bestow assurance. He wants it to produce joy. To continue your sanctification. And through the message of the word to produce salvation. Now exalt the Father's people. The fact that he protects us. He accomplishes oneness for his people. It's a key to intimacy with God. Pray for the unity of the believers.
recognize the importance of the body as part of our protection. Important key to effective evangelism. Father in heaven, at the beginning of this conference, we're here just for a moment, humbling ourselves before you, realizing that I certainly have not been able to do justice to this majestic conversation between the Son and the Father about us. But we thank you for it. And we pray its great truth over this conference, over every presenter, over every attender. And just may you be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.